Good day, everyone. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ewan, and I look after our church's ministry at Edith Cowan University on campus. Uh, that's where I usually preach and teach. Uh, but since um, both Matt and Dwayne are away, I get to be here to take us through this psalm this morning. But let me pray, and then we'll get into it. Our Heavenly Father, we confess our humanity before you. We are flesh and blood, and so often, Lord, our flesh fails us. Our spirit may be willing, but often, Lord, our flesh is weak. So this morning we pray, God, come and strengthen us that we may, like Joe said, find joy in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So some of you know um, that our daughter, Amelia, who just recently turned one, um, she's real cute, um, but she was born with a congenital heart defect. There's all sorts of things wrong with her heart. It's like on the wrong side, it's upside down, there's a hole, there's, the artery's all wrong. It's all very technical. But what it meant was when she was born, she spent the first six weeks in the ICU at Princess Margaret Hospital. I actually have a photo of her in the ICU with all the tubes coming out of her, but I thought it might be a bit too confronting to show it this morning. And that's why, actually, I wanted to call her Piper. Because, you know, her pipe's all wrong. But Karis didn't let me. So we, we laugh about it now, but at that time, there were, there were a few moments where we all thought, gee, she's not going to make it. Even though we knew the condition that she had, she didn't, she didn't present in the typical manner, and so she kept getting worse and worse and worse, and no one knew why. All right? And that's actually why she spent so long in the hospital. They even sent her for a sleep study. It's like, what's, what's your heart going to do with your sleep? And in the end, they still didn't figure it out. But since the only option left was to take her to surgery, so they went ahead, took her to surgery, and put a shunt in. And, you know, thankfully, that seemed to work. And here we are a year later. When you look at her now, you wouldn't be able to tell that there's actually quite a lot of things wrong uh, inside. And without more surgery in the future, she probably wouldn't make it to the double digits. So, you know, Christmas this year, and today's first week in 2018, we spent New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, and we thought to ourselves, 2017 has been kind of bittersweet for our family. Um, and we look back at the past year, and then we still know what is still to come, the surgeries she will still need. It's a strange, bittersweet experience. Here at North Coast, at our church, we often get told that suffering is normal, right? that God has not promised a life free from pain and suffering. In, in fact, the Bible says that all those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. We get it. We believe it. We buy it. Okay. But I think there's a difference between understanding well suffering and actually suffering well. How do you suffer well? Like, is, that, is that such a thing? Can you actually get good 
and suffering. Like how we talk about money. You know, oh, she's, she's really good with her money. Or he's terrible at managing his finances. The way we talk about those things, can we say the same about suffering? Can you actually be good or bad at dealing with suffering? And if so, obviously the question is, how do you get better? That's what I hope to show you this morning in our psalm. And since our new preaching series starts next week, and this week is kind of a once-off, I thought it'd be good to have a look at this. Psalm 88. Now, Psalm 88 is arguably the only psalm in the Bible where lament and complaint is not immediately followed by something encouraging. So, you know, you, you read your Bibles, right? In almost every psalm, the writer describes what he's going through. But at some point, you get this but God moment, right? Every psalm. So you get, you get um, people praying, oh, they're coming to kill me, but God, you deliver me. I'm dying, but God, you are my strength. But God, you are my rock. That's how all of them are, except Psalm 88. See, in our psalm this morning, there is no but God moment. There's no shining light. There's no rescue coming. There's just suffering and pain all the way down. And before we even look at it, the fact that there is a psalm like that in the Bible, I think, is an amazing thing because it's so brutally honest about life. It tells us, firstly, that even God's people suffer. And secondly, some of us can suffer for a very long time. We might be called to endure suffering for years. The sun doesn't always come out tomorrow for some of us. We don't always get the job we wanted. Marriages end, people get sick and die. Not everyone gets a happy ending. And so what Psalm 88 does is it, it validates our experiences. It shows us that, yes, suffering is an undeniable fact of life. We will suffer. But we don't, we don't just shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's life. No, Psalm 88 shows us how we should respond. And in our moments of deep anguish, it reminds us that God is bigger than our sufferings. And he doesn't begrudge our complaints. So that's our psalm this morning. Look with me at verse 1. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. Now, if you are a Christian here this morning, you must recognize these words. Doesn't it sound familiar to you? Because this is what you prayed when you became a Christian, right? Or something similar. You can't be a Christian if you've never prayed something like verse 1 and 2. And, and this is important because it, it, it frames our discussion. It sets the scene for what follows. So we're talking about, this morning, suffering as a Christian. We're not talking about humanity's experience with suffering in general, like, like why did a tsunami happen? Or we're not talking about dealing with suffering as a non-Christian. 
So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this psalm actually has a different message for you. It would raise one question which you have to answer, and I'll show you what it is. But our psalm is actually pretty simple. There's just one point this morning, and this is what it says. Cry out to God when living feels like dying. Cry out to God when living feels like dying. Look with me at verse 3. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. It, I think it should be blindingly obvious that the psalmist hasn't died yet, because he's writing the psalm. But even though he's alive, every moment feels like he's dead. So we're not, talk, we're not talking about when the airline loses your luggage. That's a first world problem. The psalmist, he is overwhelmed with troubles and his life draws near to death. This is, this, this is an experience of physical pain such that he's counted among those who go down to the pit. In other words, what it's saying is, I am as good as dead. I'm like one without strength. He may be breathing, but there's absolutely no quality of life anymore. You know, I, I'm not even that old, although some of the students from uni would tell you differently, but don't listen to them. I'm not even that old. Some of you here have been Christians longer than I've been alive. But I've seen firsthand what cancer does to a person. It doesn't care that you have two young children. You will never see them grow up. I've watched as a wife slowly lose her mind to dementia before her 50th birthday. I have sat at Royal Perth Hospital next to a mother who had to turn off the life support for her 21-year-old son. I didn't know what to do or say. I just sat there as she wept. You see, death does not discriminate. Death is not racist or sexist. Your age, your money, your talents, he doesn't care. There's no power over death. And for all of us, death casts a shadow on our lives. And the older you are, the, you know what I'm talking about. And so you know what I mean when I say that living can feel like dying. And that's what our psalmist is going through. I am set apart with the dead, he says. You can count me as good as dead. And the pain is not just debilitating, it's isolating. It cuts him off from everything. So look at verse 6. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You've taken from me my closest friends. You've made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. Our, our psalmist 
interprets his experience in relation to God. And what does he think? That this is somehow God's doing. It's you, God. It's the kind of thinking that, that makes people say to someone who's suffering, you must have sinned. It must be your sin. That's why God is punishing you. See, that's the kind of thinking. Whether he's right or wrong, we don't know. But we know that he feels like that's what he's going through. And sometimes that can be enough to crush us. You see, you might be the most theologically astute Christian. You might have gone to Bible college. But when your little girl needs a machine to help her breathe, you don't always think straight. Right? Because that's what suffering does. It drives a wedge between us and God. And the other thing that suffering can do is it isolates us from others. So we don't know what the psalmist is going through, but we know it's not just painful, it's incredibly, incredibly lonely. So let me ask a question. Am I the only one here um, who prefers not to see people when I'm going through something difficult? I don't think so. I think for many of us, when we're going through a hard time, we'd rather not talk to people. See, for some reason, we don't want others to know, or I don't know why, but what happens is we allow our suffering to dictate our lives. Either we build a box and put all our emotions into our suffering and, and keep it all locked up tight and pretend that everything is fine, or we just build a wall and lock everyone else out. So, for example, I googled this, so it must be true. According, according to um, the government, that sounds terrible, but I don't know what ministry is, the census. According to the census, 45% of all Australians will or have experienced mental health issues once in their life. 45%. That's almost one in two. And so if I look around us this morning, even just statistically, that's a lot of us here who have or are suffering from depression or severe anxiety. But when's the last time someone in your growth group shared about their depression? You see, we, we talk well about suffering, and I'm sure your growth group does. My growth group talk, talks well about suffering. But I suspect most of us don't really know how to suffer well. And Psalm, Psalm 88 is so relevant because it captures what suffering does to us. You look, you look to the end of verse 8. I'm confined and cannot escape. If we're not careful, suffering will consume us. It will slowly dim, dim the lights in our heart until it seems like things will never get better. When even waking up in the morning is an effort, seeing people is an effort when living feels like dying. Cry out to God. Cry out to God when living feels like dying. So that's verses 1 to 9. And if you go from one, um, verse 9 and you jump down to verse 13 to the end, we get a 
second set of complaints, which, which parallel verses 1 to 9. It's just, it repeats a lot of the same things. So for example, verse 13, 14, we see the psalmist cry out to God, all right? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? And in verse 15, he describes his suffering again. It's like death. Verse 15, from my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I've borne your terrors and I'm in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. See, he's interpreting his suffering in relation to God. And then verse 17 and 18, look at how isolating it is. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You've taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. You see, Psalm 88, this psalm is laid out in two halves. There's two halves, kind of like um, two front and back covers of a book. You get the lonely experience of death in life in verses 1 to 9, and then again in verses 13 to 18, kind of like the front and back covers of a book, or if you like, like a sandwich with two slices of bread. And like every good sandwich, the key is what goes in the middle. Meatballs. No, I'm kidding. Let's look at it. The central point of the psalm, verses 10 to 12. Verse 10. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do the spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness, or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? Verses 10 to 12, this is, I think, the challenge of Psalm 88. This is what will make the difference between just suffering and suffering well. Because, think about it, think about this. Why, why would the psalmist start to question God's presence in the afterlife? I don't get it. Aren't you suffering now? What does it matter whether God shows his wonders to the dead? Oh, the dead people could be in heaven playing harps or line dancing or arranging flowers. I don't know. It's not going to make a difference to you, right? You see, our, our default perspective is always in the here and now. It's what makes people say that we should work at solving the injustices in this world. So, for example, um, we don't... They, they will say that preaching is no good when people are starving, right? We don't want to be so heavenly-minded to be of no earthly good. And there's a whole movement within the church that embodies this. So they would say, we need to be a bigger voice against inequality. Or we need to champion human rights uh, for the disadvantage. Preaching the Bible? Sure. In so far as to strengthen our resolve or to make our case. Because that's what our suffering world needs, right? Someone is hungry, you give them food. A village has no water, you go in and dig a well. Our world doesn't need more Bible. You can't eat the Bible. 
We need people who can actually make a difference in this world. And so that's what they say, and that's their line of thinking. And it portrays itself as being more sensitive to suffering. Except our psalmist doesn't seem all that interested. So you won't find him praying to be rescued. Not once does he say, God, please take this suffering away. Did you notice that? At the center of the psalm are these four questions that direct our attention to what happens after we die. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't ask God to remove suffering from our lives. We should, we can, and we should. Even Jesus did. But the psalmist this morning doesn't. It's like, it's like he expects God will not rescue him. Which will make sense, because if you read verse 5, he says, I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. This psalm is for those of us who cannot find hope in this life. Here is a man who thinks God has forgotten about me. And so he cries out to God, do you show your wonders to the dead? Why? See, if you, if you get this, you will suffer well. Why? Because what does the psalmist do if he can't find God in this life? I'll look for him in the next. You can just stop for a minute and just think about what Psalm 88 is teaching us. Verses 10 to 12, let me read it again. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do the spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? Why does it matter whether or not God's love is declared in the grave. Because if it is, then even death cannot separate me from the love of God. And so bring it on. It, you see, the world, our world sees suffering as a bad thing, which it is, which it is. But Christians still see it as a bad thing, but to suffer as a Christian is to have the faith to see that God is working good out of the bad. So there's both good and bad. Although, let's be honest, given the choice, most of us would rather get rid of suffering, right? The best is we, if we can have the good without the bad. No, there, there is a better way. To suffer well as a Christian is not just seeing the good within the bad is to have our entire category of good and bad redefined so that we only have eyes for God. Is suffering good or bad, or is it both? That's not the question. The question is, where can I see God? Where is his love declared? If it's in the here and now when life is good, 
cool. If it's to be in the grave, bring it on. That's how we suffer well. Like the psalmist, what we need when life is good is God. But what we need when we are suffering is not for the suffering to go away. It's God. So let me give you an illustration. Hopefully this will make things a bit clearer. So Karis and I recently celebrated our sixth wedding anniversary. So that's six years of marriage. Or is it five? No, six years of marriage with another six plus years of dating since we were in high school together. So that's 12 years we've been together. That's a really long time to be with one person. Karis is somewhere in church, so I have to be careful what I say next. Hopefully she's in the crash. <laughs> but let's imagine for a moment, someone comes along and says, gee, one woman, your whole life? You're missing out, man. Have you, you, you never thought about trying the different menu, or if you know what I mean? And this book works both ways, eh, by the way. It's the same for the ladies. Someone can come alongside to Karis. Now, imagine I start thinking, huh, well, I guess you're right, eh? Man, I am missing out. But you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm Christian. So, uh, that's good in the bed, you know. I, we have trust, we have intimacy, we have a stable home. That doesn't sound very convincing. It doesn't sound very satisfactory, does it? You see, you can be a Christian and suffer. And sure, you've read Romans. So you know God works all things for good. So there's good in the bad. But secretly, you just wish you could have things your way. And what I'm trying to show us here is that there is a way to suffer well as a Christian. There is a way for me as a husband not to see being with one woman the rest of my life as suffering. It's by, it's by falling more and more in love with Karis so that I don't want anything else. Right? What the world may see as suffering to me is joy because I get to be with Karis. I saved myself there. I'm kidding. But that's why our psalm is the way it is. For the psalmist, God's wonders, God's love, that's what he's interested in. They are at the center of his heart. Not to have his sufferings taken away. If that's the case, then non-suffering is your God. See, that's why I said at the start, when we looked at verses 1 and 2, this only works if you're a Christian. And I don't mean you just identify with Christianity. I mean you live for God. Where God is the most important person in your life, more important than even your health, your wealth, your family, your kids. That's why I said verses 1 and 2 frame our discussion. We're talking about Christian suffering. But I get that there might be some of us here this morning who are not Christian. And so here's the question that the psalm wants you to answer. Is there life after death? That's the question for you. Is there life after death? You see, it's one thing to suffer in this life, die, and then be comforted by God in the next. But it's a tragedy to suffer in this life, 
die and have nothing. Right? And if you're not a Christian here this morning, given a choice between the two, why would you choose nothing over God? It was, um, see, this is my university ministry coming out. It was Miroslav Volf. He's a Croatian philosopher, theologian, who said that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. Huh? No, what he was saying is that the belief that God is all-loving, doesn't send anyone to hell, that, that only works in a quiet, upper-middle-class suburb where people are sheltered, sheltered from the true horrors experienced by people. You go to a war zone where entire cities have been leveled, homes burned to the ground, fathers and brothers executed, whose daughters and sisters have been raped and killed. You go there, you tell them, God is all loving, it doesn't send anyone to hell. That is the most cruel, vile thing you can ever say. And so in the same way, our question this morning, is there life after death? Given the choice between the two, unless you're living the most perfect life, and that it literally cannot get better for you, there is no logical reason for you to insist that there is nothing. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, please think about it. Choose God. Choose life. Choose to be a Christian. You can do that, just in case you didn't know. All you have to do is take verses 1 and 2, read it, say it to God, and then watch as God opens your heart. But for the rest of us, the challenge of Psalm 88 is this. Keep crying out to God when living feels like dying. Because even death cannot keep us away from God. Now if you're sharp, if you're paying attention, you will say, oh, but where does it say that? How do I know that? It doesn't say that anywhere in the psalm. How did I get there? Well, for Sardis, this psalm is actually not about you or me at all. Because as, as agonizing as our sufferings are, or how painful our pain is, we haven't gotten close to what is described here. All right. None of us have experienced this. No one here fits this description. I've been saying the psalmist, the psalmist. Who's this psalmist? Let me read the psalm to you again with a different emphasis on a pronoun. See if it describes someone familiar. Verse 3. He is overwhelmed with troubles. His life draws near to death. He is counted among those who go down to the pit. He is set apart with the dead. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavily on him. You've taken from him his closest friends and made him repulsive to them. It's almost as if he was betrayed and abandoned by his closest friends who, who, who all pretended they didn't know him. Verse 14, why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? You can almost 
hear him pray, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And look at the end, verse 18. Darkness is my closest friend. In Psalm 88, here is a man who endured incomparable suffering. And when he died, darkness covered the land. This psalm, like all psalms, points us to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, through his life and his death, stepped into the psalm and endured the isolating, lonely, painful, brutal experience of death in life. Is there life after death? Will you find God after you die from your suffering? Especially if you don't find him in this life? Jesus guarantees it when God raised him from the dead. Have a look at what Jesus himself says. This is Jesus himself in John uh, chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. If you're keen to start memorizing a Bible verse, that's the one to memorize. How do you suffer well? Is there such a thing as suffering well? Look at Jesus Christ, who endured the horrors of the cross for the joy that was set before him. He was unflinching in the face of suffering. It was said that he, he was in so much agony that he sweat. His sweats were like drops of blood. And still he prayed, "My will, your will, not mine, be done. What our suffering world needs is not more charities or social campaigns. That would be nice. Although, if I may say so, we don't really need God to do that. Some of the best charities, I think, are run by non-Christians, non-religious groups. But what God has done is what none of us here can do. He has defeated death through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he's made it possible for us to live even though we die. If we believe in Jesus Christ. So friends, church, trust Jesus. Trust what he says. Trust what God promises. And persevere in suffering. Don't give up. Keep crying out to God, knowing that one day, everything said you've experienced will be renewed. Every wound you have will heal. Every loss will be restored and every tear will be wiped away because of Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you're ever at a place where living feels like dying, read Psalm 88. See the man, Jesus Christ, who cried out to God in his death and guaranteed our life. Let's pray.